You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Red Deer, Alberta. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at redemptionreddeer.ca. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I count it a great privilege to uh, bring the word to you this morning, but it's not lost on me just how much work Pastor Chris has to put in every single week um, to do this for you. And so um, make sure if you have an opportunity this morning to thank him for all of his hard work. Um, And if you don't have a copy of God's word uh, with you this morning, um, we would like to give one to you. And so if you don't have it, raise your hand. Roger's at the back. He's got Bibles. And he would like to put one in your hand. Um, And if you actually don't own a copy of God's Word, um, please take that home with you. We would love for you to read it um, and to see just how magnificent um, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. Now, I want to ask you guys a question this morning. and And that question is, how many of you guys are good at keeping your word? Beyond a shadow of a doubt that what you say you're going to do, you actually accomplish 100%. That you are known to people as the person who keeps their word. You never let anybody down. If you're anything like me, the answer to that is like absolutely not. There are times that I do not keep my word. One of the words that I like to say is like, I try my hardest to not have any spelling mistakes on the screen on Sunday mornings. And somebody's giggling already because a couple weeks ago there was like true worship peers on the screen as opposed to true worshipers. Uh, Another thing that I don't keep my word on all the way that I want to is I tell the worship team like let's be here for 8.30 in the morning because I want to start practice right at 8.30. And Susan's already smiling a little bit because we don't really start until like 8.45. And so I I am not really a person that keeps my word 100%. And I'm sure that you're uh, the same as me. But I want to put before you a statement this morning for you to be challenged to think about. And that statement is this, that God always does what he says he's going to do. And then ask yourself this question, do you believe it? Do you believe the statement that God always does what he says he's going to do? But to the point of, even if God promised you something like five years ago, That even if it hadn't come to fruition just yet, that you would still say God is going to accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish. But I will say this, that often there are times that I'm walking through something that's challenging and I hear silence from the Lord and it begins to make me ask those questions, God, are you still faithful? Is your word still true? Does it still have meaning? And so a lack of belief in that statement actually manifests itself in in, in a lack of trust that God is going to accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish. We actually sing this statement in one of our songs on Sunday morning. The song is called This We Know, and it begins by saying, you are who you say you are, you'll do what you say you'll do, you'll be who you've always been to us, Jesus. It's poetic, but it's actually incredibly rich. If you look at each of those lines, what is it saying about God? You are who you say you are. God is the I am. God is everything that he says that he is. You'll do what you say you'll do. You're trustworthy. 
You'll be who you've always been to us. God is unchanging. And then we continue in singing that song. Um, Our response to those truths, because we believe that God is the great I am, because we believe that, we place our hope in him. Because we know that he will do exactly what he says he will do, we can get strength from him. And because we believe that he is unchanging, we know that our peace can come from God even in the darkest of days. So if there's one thing that I've learned over the past few years, and even more specifically the last 18 months, is that even during the hardest times of my life, God is faithful. Even when it seems like God is silent, he keeps his word. And this morning we're going to be looking at just that. We're going to walk through the story of the birth of John the Baptist being foretold to his father Zechariah. And what we're going to see is that we can always trust the word of God. That the statement, God always does what he says he's going to do, is 100% true. But that also, even the best of us, even with the strongest of faith, that there are times that we can doubt and disbelieve it. And yet God is always faithful to bring about what he is going to do. And so before we continue uh, any more this morning, uh, would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, you are so uh, kind to us, and we are so grateful for your word We are so grateful for the truths that we can find in every single one of these pages. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that you would uh, use my study um, from the last number of weeks to proclaim the truth that stands, uh, that is in this word. And, Lord, if there is anything um, that is not to be heard this morning, don't even let it leave my mouth. We pray that you'd be honored and glorified in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you haven't already, um, turn to Luke chapter 1, and would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning, beginning in verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, uh, but it's a good one. So let's read this together. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord." And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, 
and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus says the Lord, or thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among my people. May God bless the reading of his word to our souls this morning. You may have a seat. So uh, Chris kind of uh, jeered at me a little bit because um, I like to use like one letter for each of my points. Um, and you said, it, you said to me it was like an Oakville thing, which I was like, at first I was going to fight back on you on that, but I like grew up in Oakville, so it probably totally is. So this morning, uh, our points are actually going to be brought to you by the letter F, and our first point for you this morning is the framework. And so one thing that we need to do when we're reading this passage is we need to establish the setting. Where are we, what's going on, and who is involved? And so we have Zechariah, we have Elizabeth, we have the angel Gabriel, and we also have the multitude of people that are outside of the temple. Um, More specifically, the setting, where is it happening? Well, this is happening directly inside the temple, in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but just outside where the altar of incense is. And we also need to understand um, the background of priesthoods, because I think it is so crucial for our understanding of the text. So, Um, in serving within the temple, there was 24 divisions of the priesthood. So there's 52 weeks a year, there's 24 divisions, and so each division would serve on their selected week, and they would serve twice a year, one week at a time. And Zechariah belonged to um, the division called Abiyah, and this was not like the original line of that, because after the captivity of Babylon, when the priesthood returned to Judah, only four divisions returned. And so this wasn't one of them, and so he's likely just put into this division. They wanted consistency, they wanted to have those divisions so that they knew when people were serving. And so um, we also find out, though, that that Elizabeth, his wife, was of the descendants of Aaron. And so she grew up in a family that was like, all the males that were born were priests. So she was very much familiar with what was going on and with what Zechariah's job was. And what, they were, what Zechariah was doing was that he was burning incense. And, and burning incense for him, this is actually a high honor. And the reason it's a high honor is because the amount of priests that they were serving is estimated to be around 20,000 over the 24 divisions. So there's just under 1,000 per division. And, and he's chosen by lot to be able to enter in. And so he would go in and burn incense. They would do it morning and they would do it evening so that there would be this constant cloud that was burning to shield the eyes um, from things that they shouldn't be looking upon, especially in the Holy of Holies. And there was people that were praying outside of the temple all while this was going on. But another thing that we need to know in that Zechariah was a priest is that his knowledge of God's word would have been pretty extensive. Now, something else that we get the privilege of seeing here at the very beginning of our passage is we actually get a little bit of character development. It tells us about Zechariah, and it tells us about Elizabeth, and it says that they were both blameless and righteous. They were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all his commandments. And and Luke takes some time to clarify this very intentionally. And the reason is, is because in Old Testament times, if you didn't have a child, you were looked down upon. 
It, you were looked as if the reason that you didn't have a child was because you had some unconfessed sin in your life or you were unrepentant. You weren't, you weren't following God the way that you were supposed to. But Luke clears this up because he says they were righteous and they were blamelessly walking in the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, but they had no child. So it is not because of Elizabeth's sin. It's not because of Zechariah's sin. But we know that they were looking down upon her because at the very end of our passage, it says that Elizabeth is thankful that God took away the reproach from among her people. They no longer look down upon her. And so I want to pose a question for you this morning, and that is this. Um, if somebody was to begin writing a story like this, to, to give the characters involved and, and the, where the story is happening, and they were writing it about you, what is the one statement sentence that they would write about you? Would it be exactly what is written here? Would it be that you were righteous and that you blamelessly walked in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord? Or, or would you be described as somebody whose jokes always cross the line? Or would you be described as somebody who gets angry and gets angry far too easily? Or would you be described as somebody who looks at something that they shouldn't when nobody's around? Zechariah and Elizabeth are those who are described in such a way that if somebody was to go up to somebody else and say, hey, did you hear what Zechariah did? The person would respond and be like, that doesn't sound right at all. There's no way that he would have done that. That doesn't make any sense. So again, what about you? What about us? This has been something that's been convicting me as I've been writing it, especially this last week. My family can vouch for me on this one. We have a little puppy, and he drives me nuts. Partly because he has so much energy, and I don't. And, and he frustrates me, and I get angry with it. And so I had to come with gri to, to grips with this, and that was, what if somebody was to write a story about me, what would it say? Well, thankfully, we're on this side of the cross, and so my story would say this, and he was redeemed by the blood of Jesus, but he struggled with sin every single day. What would you be described as? What is the beginning of your story? Moving on, next we see the forerunner. The forerunner, that's often what John the Baptist is referred to. So remember, our setting right now is inside the temple and Zechariah is actually burning incense, and he is met by an angel there in the room present with him. Now, he responds in fear, and I think you would too, because he's supposed to be the only one in there, and he starts burning the incense, and all of a sudden, there's somebody else in there with him. So yes, I, I would respond in fear as well. Um, and the word fear here, the, the more of a direct translation, um, or sorry, the definition is this, an emotion experienced in anticipation of something uh, some specific pain or danger, usually accompanied by a desire to flee or fight. I love that definition. I thought it was fantastic. Now, understand more so that Zechariah being chosen to burn the incense was excited about it. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but that doesn't mean that he went in there with any less reverence than he was supposed to. He went in there fully knowing exactly what he was going to do, and he didn't want to uh, take too long in there out of fear that he might do something that he shouldn't. And then all of a sudden this angel shows up and because he's taking this job seriously, maybe he's wondering, did I do something wrong? Did I do something I wasn't supposed to? 
But the angel immediately says what? Do not be afraid. This is where my imagination starts to go a little bit, and I'm, th- I'm thinking that there's got to be like this angel 101 class in heaven where they're sitting down there, and the angel's teaching them and says, when you interact with humans, what's the first thing that comes out of your mouth? Do not be afraid. I would be terrified. But all silliness aside, what these next few verses tell us, uh, they tell us a little bit more about who Zechariah is. We get a little bit more character development. Not only is he righteous, not only does he walk blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but he is also a man who prays. Because the angel says, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. What has he been praying for? Well, he's been praying for a son. Likely, he's just praying for a son to continue his family, family name. And yet, the angel continues, not only confirming that he's going to have a son, and that he's going to name him John, but he continues to tell him more about his son. And so I'm sure that he hasn't obviously fleed the temple, and he's not fighting the angel, so he's probably just there frozen in fear. And the angel says to him, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him John, and you will have joy and gladness. And I'm thinking, yeah, he's probably like, yeah, duh, of course I'm going to be filled with joy. I'm having a son. I've been praying for that. I, I want a son to be able to continue my family name. So yes, of course there's joy. But then there's also the statement that people are going to rejoice at his birth. And maybe what's going through his mind is simply, you know, people aren't going to look down upon me anymore because we actually, like, we have a a, a son now. We have a child. But more so, it's actually going to be joy surrounding who the character of John the Baptist is. Why? Because it says that he is going to be great before the Lord. The The joy has more to do with John's ministry than it has to do with the family name. And already John's purpose is set out before him. He's not even conceived yet, and he's he's classified as going to be great before the Lord. So listen up, Zechariah. You can't let him drink any strong drink or wine, and he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, one thing that I had to kind of wrap my mind around while I was studying this passage is that even though this book, the book of Luke, is actually in the New Testament, we're still in the Old Testament times here. So John the Baptist, when he comes, he's still an Old Testament prophet. And so the being filled with the Holy Spirit, what is being communicated here is that he is going to be given everything that he needs in order to accomplish the purposes that God has before him. It is subtly, subtly preparing us for the truth that we talked about at the beginning, that God is always, that is God is going to do what he says he's going to do, and absolutely nothing is going to stop it. And since that Zechariah's job meant that he had an intimate knowledge of the scriptures, including what they were waiting for, the promise of the Messiah, the context of our story actually has another crucial piece of information that we need to know. And that is that this story is happening after 400 years of silence from the Lord. 400 years of silence, where no scripture was written, where no prophets were present, No big, huge, gigantic miracles and stories like we read about in the Old Testament. Which is another reason why it's actually a really big deal that Zechariah is called righteous and blameless. Because he had the word of God. So let's put those puzzle pieces together right now. We have the Lord being silent for 400 years. And we have Zechariah being aware of the scriptures. And then the angel actually brings in a quote, the final words from the Old Testament. From Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. 
So I'm going to read uh, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. I want you to look at verses 16 and 17 as I read it. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So what is Zechariah hearing right now from the angel? The silence is broken. The waiting is over. The Messiah is coming. But remember what God said he was going to do 400 years ago? The time is now. The time has come. The waiting is over. And your son, Zechariah, your son is going to be the forerunner. Your son is going to be great before the Lord, and his preaching is going to be so impactful that it's going to cause people to repent from their sins. And those who are disobedient, literally it is those who are difficult to persuade, those who are incredibly stubborn, they're going to be changed. All this to make a people prepared for the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, I don't, I don't know exactly the fear that Zechariah felt when he was in the temple because I've never burnt incense in a temple and I've most certainly not encountered an angel in that way. And I, and I don't really understand the, the promise of joy that he's going to have surrounding this son because I also haven't had an angel tell me, hey, your son Josh is going to be the next Charles Spurgeon. That didn't happen in our family. I'm not sure if it happened in yours. If it did, that's cool. But it didn't happen for us. But what I do understand is the joy that I would feel when I finally realized that God was no longer silent, that he finally responded. How many of you are going through a season of life right now where you feel like God is just not there? That he's not present? That you feel like you can't see him anywhere? Maybe, maybe you're just going through an incredibly difficult trial and you're on your knees asking God for an answer and he's not answering you. Or, or maybe it's just simply a season where you're actually, like you're in God's word every single day, you're reading it, but the, the words aren't jumping off the page. You, you can't find the joy that you think you should from God's word. Where you're just going through the motions. Let me encourage you to be exactly like Zechariah and Elizabeth here. Because regardless of your circumstances that you are facing, the Lord is present. The Lord is there. You need to remind yourselves of the truths that you know. Saying things Lord, like, Lord, help me to not forget in the darkness the things that I believed in the light. Because this is what Zechariah and Elizabeth are doing. Their faith doesn't come from this personal experience of these big miracles or prophets being present all the time, or these epic experiences from the Old Testament. Their faith comes from the Word of God. Has God been silent for you? Are you having trouble seeing and hearing from Him at this moment? Now, you would think, you would think that Zechariah, having that knowledge of Scripture, that he would respond to this promise of his son being the forerunner for the Messiah, that he would respond with this big celebration. But what we actually see next is uh, what I've called the fallout. And that is this, that Zechariah doesn't respond here with, with this exuberant excitement or joy or faith, but rather he responds with doubt and disbelief. 
as if the appearance of, of the angel isn't enough in the temple telling him that the silence is over, that his prayer was going to be answered. There's this, there's this human nature to not fully understand the ways of God, and it manifests itself in doubt. And he displays this doubt by demanding a sign. How will I know this to be true? How will I know this? Because I am old, and so is my wife. But what we see is that his doubt actually leads to some discipline, and that is, Zechariah, you are going to be mute for the next nine plus months. Nine, plus, nine months plus eight days, because he doesn't get his voice back until John is circumcised eight days after his birth. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? That, that the Lord was silent for 400 years, and, and the punishment that Zechariah receives is that he needs to be silent for the next nine months. What a humble reminder. Now, given the circumstances that we've talked about, about the seriousness of serving in the temple, I can only imagine that the time it was taking for Zechariah inside the temple, talking with the angel, or li- rather listening to the angel, that it would be causing concern for those who were outside of the temple, which makes total sense why they said in verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And yet what we see is that his doubt, which had this this consequence, that consequence actually ultimately led to a confirmation that the Lord did something inside of the temple. Verse 22 says they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. Now often I, uh, I tell the youth that one of the things that I really hope that is in heaven, I don't know if it will be, probably not, is a movie theater. Now, bear with me. I would love for there to be a movie theater so that I can go in, grab my hopefully free popcorn and pop, and sit down and, and watch movies. But I want to watch, watch stories from this. This is what I want to see. I want to see exactly what it looked like for, the, for, for the, the waters to be parted, to cross the Red Sea. Was it actually mud on the ground or was it like actually dry? Because I can't reconcile that right now. I don't know. I want to see what it looked like for, for Daniel to be in the lion's den. Was he sleeping right with the big kitties or was he over off into the side uh, while they were on this side of the cave? Um, I also want to hear what it sounded like for David to have written the Psalms. I want to know how tall Goliath was. These are the things that I want to see. But there's one other thing that I really want to see, and that is a man who has gone into a temple, who's seen a vision from the Lord, and then comes out, and he's unable to speak, and there's no such thing as sign language. How is he communicating to these people? I don't know if he's like walking in, and do they have matches? I don't know. Saying, I lit a match, and doing the incense, or however they did that, and I'm so afraid that all of a sudden there's this angel. I don't know if he would do something like this. Like, he's coming out and trying to explain, like, what is, what is going on? And, and how does he communicate to them that the prophecy of God being silent for 400 years, that that prophecy is now fulfilled and, and that John the Baptist is going to come? So, guys, the, the waiting is over. As funny as that is to imagine, the sign that was given to Zechariah was a little bit of a rebuke for his disbelief, for his doubt. That he didn't trust that God's word was true. But there's also grace in his silence. Imagine not being able to talk for nine months. A daily reminder 
that you did not believe the word of God. But in that daily reminder that you did not believe the word of God, you were reminded that God is fulfilling what he said he was going to. You are silent because you didn't believe, and now your wife is pregnant. God is going to accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish. So what do you have in your life that is a reminder to you that God is going to accomplish what he said he was going to, that God is present, that God is willing to walk with you through trials? I'm going to tell you a story of our family about our two sons. Um, It was, well, six and a half years ago now that my wife and I were sitting on a couch in our living room, and she looked over at me, she goes, and, and she's pregnant with Declan, and she says, something is wrong, we need to go to the hospital. It's 15 minutes to get to the hospital. The person that we needed to have come um, to watch our other two children, uh, Neve and Liberty, um, they're two and four years old, and they were 15 minutes away. And I called him, he was there in 15 minutes, and, and somehow, from the moment that my wife said that, that something was wrong, we needed to go to the hospital, to the moment that we walked into the hospital was actually only 15 minutes. If the math doesn't make sense. 15 minutes for me to get there, 15 minutes to wait for my friend to get there. Math doesn't make sense. So the Lord's in this. We get to this big hospital. Where's the one parking spot that we can find? Right in front of the door. Fantastic. This is great. We walk into the hospital. We go up the elevator. Sam is immediately put into triage. And then I'm like, we forgot something in the van. So I turn around, I go down the elevator, I go back out to my van, and I come back in. I'm giving you a play-by-play for a very specific reason, and that is this. By the time we left the couch to the time I got back up into the hospital room was probably only about 30 minutes, and I walked into that triage, and the midwife said to us, we need to put your wife into an operating room. She needs to have an emergency C-section, and it needs to happen now. Something is wrong, but we don't know what. Your son's heart rate is significantly higher than what it's supposed to be. It was over 200 beats per minute, and it was supposed to be only like, what, 150 or something like that? So his heart is racing, and Sam has a fever. And then the next words out of the midwife's mouth was this. Josh, we need you to prepare for the worst. We need to prepare you that you you could lose your wife, you could lose your son, or worst of all, you could lose both. They didn't give me the other option which was that nothing would be wrong. And so I have this going through my mind where the Lord had been teaching us so much at the place that we were at um, that we needed to be relying upon the Lord that he always holds our lives in the palm of his hand and he was teaching me to trust in him and I'm put in this chair just outside of the two operating rooms. Nobody's told me what is going on. I have no idea where my wife is at that moment. I just know that that room there, there's one person having a C-section, and this room here, there's another person having a C-section, and I'm sitting here all alone. And then the doors from one of the room open, and this nurse is pushing this trolley, and there's a gigantic bowl filled with red liquid. And so where does my mind go? My mind goes, that's filled with blood. Looking back now, it was probably just a wash basin, <laughs> but I, I looked at it, and I was like, there is no way that somebody could lose that amount of blood and still be alive. Keep in mind, I have no idea where my wife is at this moment, and so I'm sitting in this chair, and the Lord brings these promises to me. 
that he has been teaching me so much in God's word. The first one was Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. This one I, I had received um, when I was listening to a, a sermon about a family that was driving behind this big truck and there was this big, huge, gigantic metal spool on the back of the truck and the chain broke, the spool fell off, bounced over mom and dad and crushed the four kids in the back. And mom and dad woke up beside each other in the hospital room and the first words out of their mouth were, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. And I was like, Lord, I need that faith. That is what I need. And then I sent out prayer requests to my parents. My parents um, didn't just pray. They got in the van and they drove to the hospital. They were there in 45 minutes. We're so thankful for that. I needed them for that moment. With a bunch of people praying, the Lord also brought the same passage of scripture that he used to convict me um, into coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And that was Psalm 63. It says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And I cried out to the Lord. I said, I am so thirsty right now. God, I need you. And then what happens next? The doors to my right open up. The midwife and the doctor walk through, pushing my wife on a stretcher to go into one of the rooms. She was fine. She goes in, she has her C-section, and they run a plethora of tests on our son. And the midwife comes to me a few days later because he had to stay in the NICU and says to me, um, I can't tell you what was wrong. There was no reason for that. We don't know what happened. It was wrong. Or, nothing was wrong. And I was able to, to look at her and say, actually, I do know what was wrong. And that was, there was so many people praying for our son. And that is exactly what the Lord did. The Lord took away whatever it was that was there. And what does the name Declan mean? The name Declan means man of prayer. Fast forward three years, we have another difficult pregnancy with our son, Tobias where we have to travel to and from Calgary uh, once, once a week for sure, more often than not. It was difficult on our family because every single time we would go, the joke was Sam would come out and I'd look at her and I'd be like, all right, hon, what's wrong this time? And every single time we were a little bit anxious about it, we were reminded about how God brought us through the trial with Declan and, and it was a prime opportunity for discipleship with our kids, who were now three, five, and seven at that point. And, and I was able to say to my kids, it's okay. Like, even if all these things go wrong and something happens with your new little brother who's going to be coming, and he doesn't get to join our family for very long, God is still good. God is still good. So what does the name Tobias mean? Tobias means goodness of God. So we have those two specific stories that remind us all the time that we need to be a people of prayer, a family of prayer, and that we need to be reminded of the goodness of God. What reminders do you have? Now, you might not have the name of a child that reminds you. Maybe you have an ailment that is bothering you and has been for a long time because of a mistake that you made in the past that reminds you not to do it again? I don't know. Or maybe it, that it's you're struggling with 
like temptation of some sort. And you need a reminder that, that God is faithful and he will provide a way out. And so if you don't have the name of a child, if you don't have an ailment or anything else for that matter that reminds you that God is good, that he always does what he says he's going to do, I have a a number of scriptures that we're going to put on the screen for you this morning because I want you to have something. And so the first one is 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 13. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If you're struggling with something right now and you're having a difficulty saying no and you're saying I'm just not strong enough, this verse is proof that you are with the help of the Lord. You need his help and he will help you to endure it. The next verse um, is, a, is a verse that we actually often use in our family, and that's Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I actually chuckled because yesterday my daughter uh, painted this mountain picture, and she painted Isaiah 41.10, the reference on there, and she says, Dad, I'm going to put this beside my bed because I know there's times that I wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm afraid of the dark, and I need to make sure that I remember that I have nothing to fear because God is with me. The next one has been uh, a verse that I've held dear to for a long time, and that is this, James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The trial that you're walking through right now, stand firm. Stand firm to receive the crown of life. Another one. Jesus just gives us the Great Commission, commanding us to go and make disciples of all nations. And what does he say at the very end of that? He says this, And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. If you didn't hear the always, he makes sure that you hear it again, to the end of the age. I am with you always. I am with you, and I will never, ever leave you. And then Philippians 4.19, it says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You have everything that you need. A couple weeks ago, we actually read the next verse, and that is 2 Peter 1 verse 3, And his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You have everything that you need. Moving on, we have Philippians 1 verse 6. This is another great one. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Salvation, justification. You are, uh, there's a one-time legal act of God and God only where he declares you innocent. Sanctification is the process that we walk through here in our life right now. It is an act of both God and man where we become less and less like the world and more and more like Jesus Christ. But then it is completed at the day of Jesus Christ when we enter into glory with him, in glorification. And lastly, one of my favorites is this one here from Revelation Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If you are walking through something incredibly challenging right now, 
uh, whether it's a trial or just that you feel that God is not present, this is a promise that you really need to grab a hold of. Because you might be walking through that trial until the day you go see the Lord. Your life might be difficult until the day that you see the Lord. But if you're weeping over your trial right now, if you are broken and on your knees and begging God to stop it, look at this promise. While your tears might not be wiped away here on this earth, when you go to see the Lord, He's going to be dwelling with you. And what is He going to do? He's going to wipe away every tear from your eye. There's going to be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Because those things have passed away. What a promise to hold dear to when the Lord is silent. Do you believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do? Our last point for this morning is the fulfillment. Now remember, um, last week, uh, Pastor Chris told us that the doctor had details. Um, and the doctor for sure has details here. And I think it's just so great it tells us in verse 23 that Zechariah was faithful still and he finished his time serving and after he went home is when Elizabeth conceived. So there's no way for you to say that Elizabeth was unfaithful. This is a child of Zechariah and Elizabeth and given that Luke is a doctor, I'm pretty sure we can trust his word on how babies are made. This here is the culmination of the prophecy spoken by the prophet in Malachi, and then again by the angel Gabriel. Despite being promised 400 years before this moment, God works in his time, God works in his ways, not ours, and we can trust him because he never fails. God promised in Malachi, God did in Luke chapter 1. But there's also another way that God worked and that God promised what he was going to do and then fulfilled that, that is far greater than the story of John the Baptist. God's word tells us in places that the plan of redemption was even in place before the foundations of this world. And that 700 years before his crucifixion, even 100 years before crucifixion was even invented, Isaiah 53 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah 53 also says that he would be silent on the way to the cross. Psalm 34 says that none of his bones would be broken. Isaiah 50 tells us that his back would be lashed, his beard would be pulled out. Psalm 22 talks about how Jesus was thirsty on the cross. It talks about how the Roman soldiers were dividing his garments among themselves after his hands and his feet were pierced. And, and this isn't even the half of the prophecies about Jesus that he fulfilled. This is only a small handful. But my point here isn't, is, is less about the obedience, which is still amazing that Jesus obeyed his Father, but more about the fact that these promises were wit written well before Jesus was going to be crucified. God did what he said he was going to do. Worship team, you can come up and join me now. Friends, fulfilling these prophecies, these, it's not mere coincidence. 
Statistically speaking, for Jesus to fulfill eight prophecies is one in 10 to the power of 17. That's one with 17 zeros after it. It's 100,000 trillion. But if you're anything like me, a number is just like, wow, that's really long. I don't get it. So here's a great analogy. It's not my own. I wish I could have the time and the math expertise to come up with this, but I didn't. And that is this. If you take the state of Texas or, or for us Canadians, if you take Alberta, Vancouver Island, and then tack on another 1,700 square kilometers, okay, and you cover that two feet deep in silver dollars, and on one silver dollar, you put a red dot, and you put it out there, and then you mix everything up, and then you get somebody to come up, you blindfold them, and you say, all right, go pick it up on your first shot. Pick it up on your first shot. That is the chance the possibility of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies. And he filled, fulfilled so many more. And many of those prophecies are of him having gone to the cross. We had a huge problem. We were enemies of God. We, we could only pay for our sin through death. And yet Jesus Christ came. He died on the cross. He said, I'm going to take the penalty for your sin. His blood covers over our sin. And Romans tells us that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. At the beginning, I asked if you believe that statement, God always does what he says he's going to do. Do you believe that now? Do you believe that God is the keeper of promises? Do you believe that God is faithful again and again? Do you believe that God is the sovereign Lord, the one who reigns over all? And maybe you're just like me, that you need to be reminded of it once again. That God always keeps his word, that he is unchanging, because it's who he is.